Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum, where we explore the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to intimate and patriarchal violence and the intersections with HIV. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thanks for joining us. I think one thing that's really important to understand is that HIV is a symptom of many different intersecting systems of injustice. Welcome to season two of Expanding the Continuum. We are thrilled to launch with a conversation with Nana Kanna, co-director of the Positive Women's Network, on the impact of HIV criminalization and criminal legal responses to public health problems on survivors living with HIV. Let's get started. Welcome, Nana. I'm so pleased to be talking to you today. Um, I want to... Well, I'd love to begin by just inviting you to introduce yourself. Um, tell us about you. Um, tell us about the organization you work with. Um, what brings you to this work? Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Surabi, and Futures Without Violence. I'm grateful to be here. So I'm Nana Kanna, uh, pronouns she or they. I'm the executive director of Positive Women's Network USA, and we are a national membership body led by and for women and people of trans experience living with HIV. We basically exist to build power for communities most impacted by the domestic HIV epidemic and uh, really to build power in all aspects of policy and decision-making that impact our lives. And so I come to this work as a woman living with HIV. Um, it is part of our mission and our ethos to be governed by the constituency that we are accountable to. And so our board of directors are entirely women and trans folks living with HIV throughout the United States. Our um, staff are majority women living with HIV and majority black and brown and trans folks. Um, and, you know, as such, we, um, we strive to be reflective of the constituency that we serve. And so we have members all around the United States. We also have um, chapters of organized women living with HIV advocating and um, leading at the local and state level, in addition to a lot of the national policy work um, and organizing work we do. And so we basically, um, we, we basically do leadership development work um, in impacted communities. Uh, we organize on issues and also on elections to ensure that our issues are well represented. We do policy work and strategic policy campaigns, and we do a lot of work around narrative shift and um, addressing stigma and really centering lived experience and expertise um, and centering women living with HIV, especially black women, women of color, um, women who may face different kinds of barriers to being involved in policy and decision making, centering the most impacted folks always as decision makers in our processes. 
Fantastic. That's so central to so many of the equity conversations that many of our listeners will be uh, having at their organizations. So it's inspiring to have uh, to get to hear uh, what you're uh, what y'all are doing. So what kinds of issues uh, are are you all or, or organizing around right now? What is PWN focused on? Yeah, great question. So while we're just coming off, you know, uh, quite a few years of uh, very harmful, repressive policies by basically by an authoritarian fascist regime that were directly targeting our constituency. And so I think one thing that's really important to understand is that HIV is a symptom of many different intersecting systems of injustice. And so the HIV epidemic itself, when you look at how it's impacting um, anyone globally, but certainly in the U.S. context for women, you know, the majority of women living with HIV in the U.S. are black women, uh, Latinx folks, um, trans folks, people who are low income people who are marginalized um, because they use substances or um, trade sex, um, you know, in order to survive. And so the issues that we work on are very, very intersectional. Um, HIV is the entry point to our policy work, but as women living with HIV, our lives don't only center around HIV. So our policy agenda is, um, you know, universal health care. We need universal health care um, for our communities to be well. Um, our policy agenda includes um, reproductive justice, um, sexual and reproductive health and rights really broadly, including trans-centered reproductive justice and making sure that systems of, um, of care really are gender responsive. Um, our policy agenda includes working on um, employment and economic justice. So protecting the um, protecting programs that our members depend on, like SNAP, the food stamp program, um, expanding Medicaid, you know, ensuring housing security. Th these are the issues that really affect our lives. Um, other issues that we work on are ending criminalization. And so, um, and that's ending criminalization uh, related to HIV, but not only HIV criminalization. And, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about specifically what I mean when I talk about HIV criminalization. But other forms of incarceration and policing that impact people living with HIV are also policing of sex work, policing of substance use, policing of black bodies and brown bodies, um, policing of walking while trans. You know, these are all issues that we work on that intersect with our, very much with our base. Um, and then, um, you know, I think some of the ways that we've collaborated with Futures Without Violence is certainly around much of our policy agenda that's focused on ending violence against women living with HIV and addressing trauma. Um, and so when we talk about ending violence, we are concerned with um, intimate partner violence and interpersonal violence, but we also very much look at structural violence as it impacts the lives of women living with HIV in the U.S. And, um, and we, we approach the conversations about trauma and healing as um, with a set of assumptions that understands that um, any you know, person in a body that is racialized, any person in a body that is um, that is gendered differently from sort of like white, cis, hetero patriarchy is um, existing inside of a system that is traumatizing us. And so healing is actually central to our liberation. So our our policy work and our demands around um, violence and trauma are um, are 
are systemic and they are political, but they are also cultural and they are also about how we work together. We're in a real moment of opportunity, um, you know, in terms of the political climate and also a moment where we have a short window to make some steps towards our vision possible. Yes, that window does feel open. I mean, there's a lot of momentum nationally around a voice, a more collective voice about what we what we will not accept and what we demand. And I, it, so, it sounds like this. There's a real uh, confluence there. I want to go back to something you said, um, saying about how intimate partner violence and structural violence sounds like the way you described it. They are they echo each other to some degree and they inform each other. Can you talk a little more about how IPV and structural violence relate to each other from your perspective? Yes, um, it you know it's a it's a big question, but you know when I talk about structural violence, I'm talking about systems that were actually set up to, to harm people either consciously or unconsciously by reinforcing inequities, um, and in in many cases reinforcing violations of human rights. And so we're living inside of this culture where white supremacy is real, um, patriarchy is real, heterosexism, cisgenderism, all of these systems are very real. And communities um, are being harmed by this in a in an ongoing way, and so um, black and brown folks are being harmed by this in an ongoing way. Um, women, femmes, trans, non-binary folks are being harmed by this in an ongoing way, and so. Um, there are decades, generations, um, hundreds of years of basically violence against against communities, um, against Black folks in this country. Um, you know, uh, genocide of indigenous communities in this country, literal crossing of borders over people in this country. Um, that have perpetrated violence and that have created a situation where I think we have a very, you know, honestly, a very like confused relationship to violence as well. Inside of that container, um, when people face uh, in interpersonal violence, it can be very hard to find recourse, you know, to address that, that is, um, that is actually trusted and where you're not depending on systems that have already harmed you. So that's, that's one element, right? So law enforcement in this country is actually, um, is not neutral and has never been neutral. Um, so that's, that's one problem. Um, but also, uh, you know, when we talk about community violence, you know, for example, whether we're talking about gun violence or, um, the, you know, the kinds of weapons that we see in communities, we really have to go back and ask ourselves, how did they get there? Um, that was no accident, right? It is no accident that um, there are no, there are more weapons and more guns in certain communities than others. It is no accident that the only, um, you know, opportunities for people to climb out of poverty may be um, opportunities that are criminalized by the law in those same communities. And that is a really deliberate um, strategy that has been maintained um, in order for certain folks to retain power in this country. Community violence that's happening um, interpersonal violence that's happening is not happening outside of these um, of these constructs of power and the way that resources have been um, allocated and the, the ways that opportunities have been constructed. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I gosh, I really, I really do want to keep talking about this, but I also want to move us to um, following up on another piece that you brought up, and I'd like to begin some elaboration on. Um, 
how um, both the criminalization of HIV and the criminalization of people living with HIV and other health issues, how it works in our country. I understand that more than half of U.S. states have laws on the books that criminalize unintended or intended transmission. How do these laws work and how, are the, how harmful are they for people living with HIV and their families? The U.S. often approaches what we consider problems by um, by using the law, and so we we do that with a lot of different things. If you look at um, you know um, the crisis of capitalist housing, for example, that is forcing a lot of people to um, live on the streets or to be unstably housed, how do we respond to that? Well, often our first response is to you know do these sweeps of the streets and incarcerate or jail folks or have like loitering laws or things like that. Um, The same with mental health. You know, we often have punitive responses to mental health, to substance use, um, where substance use we know is really often a coping mechanism for a lot of different forms of trauma that folks have experienced over their lifetimes. How do we respond to it? Frequently not with um, not with services and programs and support and help, but rather by incarcerating people and locking them up. And so our approach to um, HIV, unfortunately, has not been any different. Um, we have a, an epidemic of criminalizing things in this country to try to make them go away. And so back in the um, in the 80s and the 90s, when um, you know when the U.S. was trying to figure out how to respond to this epidemic, um, the the HIV epidemic, um, part of what happened was a, a desire to contain and control um, onward transmission of the virus by uh, creating laws that would punish people for um, transmitting the virus or for exposing others to HIV. Uh, That sort of like trend in response got very much codified in the first version of the Ryan White Care Act. So the Ryan White Care Act was a historic piece of legislation that was fought for by the HIV community for a long time. It was the first federal program to fund fund um, to fund health care and services for people living with HIV. And it's a really important program on which many of us depend as people living with HIV. And, um, you know, it serves about half a million people living with HIV every year, still to this day. But when that first piece of legislation was um, initially introduced, one of the things that got added into it as a as a rider was a requirement that for any states receiving Ryan White funding, they had to be able to demonstrate that they had the ability to prosecute intentional transmission. And... Um, Unfortunately, a lot of states went much further than deciding to um, to be able to prove that they could prosecute intentional transmission. And so what got written into the laws of the states that wanted to qualify for this federal funding at the time was a range of types of laws um, that are specific to people living with HIV. And those include... Um, they're, they're different state to state. Um, they sometimes include um, exposure, alleged exposure, um, trans, actual transmission, potential transmission, non-disclosure um, can also be criminalized in some states. And so, you know, there's very substantial variation in these laws. They exist in over 30 states and U.S. territories at this time. And... Um, 
there is no way um, to, um, you know, undo those laws in one fell swoop. They have to be addressed state by state. Um, uh, and, and we've had some successes in that. But the other issue is that many of these laws were written at a time when much less was known about HIV transmission. And there was a lot of hysteria about HIV. So they're really not even grounded in science. And um, the application of these laws is very much open to interpretation and comes down to, you know, one person's word against the other often. Um, and um, so, and also true to form as the U.S., we proceeded to export these types of laws around the world so that HIV criminalization is not only a U.S. problem, it is a global problem now. Um, and so, um, yeah, so we've had some success, you know, these, it's, it's pretty well recognized at this point that these laws are a hindrance to actually addressing the HIV epidemic. Um, if you cannot be prosecuted under these laws in any state if you don't know your HIV status. So, well, what does that do? That deters, um, that deters a desire for people to know if they're living with HIV. You can't be prosecuted if you don't know. So that's one problem. Number two, um, you could not, um, you're much less likely to face risk of prosecution if nobody knows. So um, what does that do to disclosure? Um, what does that do to, you know, um, being able to take your medication? Most of us as people living with HIV need to take medication every day. If you're worried about somebody seeing your meds um, and that being an inadvertent disclosure, even if by taking those medications you're actually protecting your partner um, because it's not possible to transmit HIV if you have a sustained uh, suppressed viral load, which is what happens when you take medications that are working to combat the replication of the virus in your body. Um, well, if you know if somebody sees your medication and um, didn't know or claims they didn't know um, your HIV status, you could be at risk for prosecution depending on where you are, even if they never acquire HIV. Um, we've also seen situations with like a bad breakup where um, you know somebody. Um, a, a partner knew the other partner's HIV status, but there's a bad breakup. We all have bad breakups, right? And um, sometimes you're angry and you want to lash out. Unfortunately, in the case of people living with HIV, the law then becomes a tool to lash out um, at a, you know, at a at a past partner. And so um, it's it's uh, you know one of the problems is that in in many of the cases where um, prosecutions happen, no transmission even occurred. Um, but you can be prosecuted whether or not transmission occurred. Um, and then even if the prosecution doesn't ultimately end up being successful, um, well, imagine everything that's been lost along the way. Like your your confidentiality has been lost. We've had situations where um, people have lost custody of their kids along the way, fi fighting these criminalization battles. Um, uh, losing housing or being evicted from housing, which may not be legal, but um, but it can be really hard to you know to fight that if you're already a person who's um, struggling and doesn't have legal representation and things like that. Um, how do you also fight your landlord when they find out find out there's a case against you for HIV, um, you know, alleged HIV non-disclosure or something like that? People have lost jobs. People have had their lives ruined. They've had their 
um, you know, their names and their photos plastered on the on a newspaper. Um, so and then if you are um, convicted, some states will require you to register as a sex offender. Um, if you are um, if you are successfully prosecuted and convicted under HIV criminalization laws, well, what that means for um, for people who have kids is if you're a registered sex offender, you um, you cannot you know go within a certain radius of your kid's school to pick them up or drop them off. You're not allowed to be near playgrounds. Um, you might not be allowed to live in areas that have kids. You might have to register every time you move as a sex offender. That can impact your access to housing. Um, there are many jobs you can't get. Some states, I have a friend who was successfully prosecuted in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and his driver's license has a stamp on it that says sex offender on it now that he has to show every time he walks into a bar. Um, and this person is not a sex offender. He is a person living with HIV who is one of those people who went through a bad breakup. And... Um, and, you know, a partner um, came after him and had him prosecuted. So um, these laws have real devastating consequences on people's lives, and they certainly do not do anything to, um, to protect the rest of the public, which is ostensibly the goal, from acquiring HIV. And in fact, it seems pretty clear that these laws are undermining, you know, the incentive for people to get tested, to know their HIV status, to maintain their health, to disclose their HIV status, um, and all of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you sort of started to talk about this when you were talking about bad breakups, but I can imagine that these laws and criminalization in, in principle also can, will increase the danger and vulnerability for survivors of partner violence or sexual assault. I'm, I'm wondering, can you say more about that, like how this affects survivors of violence? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the one of the things we've seen that is extremely troubling is um, ways in which the threat of being prosecuted can be sort of wielded as a tool of coercion and control in mm. um, relationships that are not healthy. So abusive relationships, you know, whether it's emotional abuse, psychological, physical abuse, um, if, if one partner is living with HIV, um, the other partner can, you know, literally threaten them. If you leave me, I'm going to disclose your HIV status. If you leave me, I'm going to um, send the cops after you. I'm going to say that you never told me about your HIV status. Um, if you... If you leave me or escape or if you, you know, report this abuse um, or try to get out of this situation, um, I'm going to, um, you know, disclose your HIV status at your job. Like, so there, there are lots of ways in which criminalization, but also HIV status itself, because of the stigma and because of the discrimination that can ensue, can be wielded as a tool of coercion and control. Um, also, um, you know, because... People living with HIV can be prosecuted in many states for not disclosing for theirs, to their sexual partners. Um, there's not necessarily exceptions for rape or sexual assault. I know of at least a couple of examples where people living with HIV have been raped and have been afraid to report that to authorities or to seek help because they didn't disclose to their rapist and are um, concerned that they could be prosecuted um, or that they could be vulnerable vulnerable to prosecution. 
were they to go to the local authorities. Um, and that has happened, you know, just in the last few years um, to a couple of people I know in the U.S. And, you know, that's re it's really outrageous to think that that somebody could be in the situation of being so, um, you know, so fearful of reporting this like horrible, violent violation that happened to them because they're afraid that they themselves could be criminalized. Mm. I mean, it really begs the question, like, who are the laws? Who is public health here to protect and, and improve the lives of, you know, um, because the setup is always the the most affected, the most marginalized are not the ones at the center of the conversation, which is what, you know, makes PWN such a rich resource in the community, certainly, um, among other things. Just to kind of stay in that in this place around public health, um, how do you see, I mean, there's this way that public health is used to kind of um, be the cloak over surveillance and and policing and control of populations uh can you I illustrate that for us like how these systems kind of are operating to um expand this pattern of violence that's like at the state level because it's so because it's through laws and public health like rules and practices how is this how does criminalization fit into this and may, and possibly are are you able to see any other parallels today if you have anything any reflections on the current epidemic that we're dealing with while it's not exactly the same as HIV i think there are a lot of lessons um that you probably have that apply here as well yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's well known and hopefully hopefully widely accepted at this point that the, the criminal legal system in the U.S. is a racist system mm -hmm. and it is a bias system um, in many different ways. And so um, what we see is that it is not only um, people living with HIV, like, you know, sort of broadly speaking, who are at risk for harm from these laws that criminalize HIV, um, because these laws are also intersecting with other forms of surveillance and policing that are targeting communities. And so, um, for example, um, people who are trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming often get picked up by the cops or stopped by the cops mm -hmm. at very disproportionate rates. This is a phenomenon called um, walking while trans, right, similar to driving while black. Um, People are profiled, um, stopped by the cops, maybe interrogated, maybe searched. So in some, um, you know, in some states and cities, there are things like con condoms as evidence laws, where um, if you're found with more than a certain number of condoms on you, you can be prosecuted under solicitation statutes or things like that. So the net that is basically catching, like trying to catch people, um, the net is really different depending on who you are and where you are. And so um, what we see when we look at HIV criminalization data um, is that these laws are not being applied equitably. Um, which is not a surprise, I think, for anybody who really looks at the, the carceral systems we live in. So in California, for example, when we looked at data on prosecutions of uh, related to HIV status, we found that 
um, like 43% of those who had been criminalized in California um, under HIV specific criminal laws were women. Um, and women are only about 13% of the epidemic in California. Um, about 67%, I think, were black and brown folks, even though um, black and Latino folks specifically, even though black and Latino folks in California represent somewhere around um, half or less of people living with HIV. Um, there's not good data on how trans folks are impacted because they're often misgendered by the system. But these are these are situations where, um, you know, often you can be picked up for something else and then HIV can get added on as a sentence enhancement, for example. Uh, and this and this also happens, by the way, you know, for people who are incarcerated. Um, there can be increased penalties for like spitting on a law enforcement officer, for example, or getting into a fight in jail or in prison if you're a person living with HIV under um, various types of like exposure statutes. But to the to the question you raised about how are we seeing that play out now with COVID-19, it's been a really patchwork response um, that our country has had to COVID-19. But one thing we have seen is that with laws that have been put in place like um, like quarantine laws or, um, you know, restricted movement laws and things like that, um, stay at home orders, the folks who are getting um, picked up for violations of these orders most frequently are also black and Latinx folks. There was a report in New York City that came out, you know, I think showing very disparate policing in the early days of COVID-19 and the early days of the New York response. We are definitely seeing some trends that are very concerning um, all over the country. And um, one thing we're paying a lot of attention to is how contact tracing for COVID-19 is working. Um, there are... Um, there are a lot of sensitivities around doing things like contact tracing and the, um, you know, health systems workers that are engaged in that work need to be very highly sensitized to, um, to issues like intimate partner violence or community violence that could come up as well as potential discrimination issues, um, as well as um, issues of criminalization and, and policing and how folks could be differently impacted. Um, and I think we need to not forget that we are just emerging from an administration that um, many times tried to deport people based on um, health status, to, um, to target people who, uh, immigrants who had expensive health conditions um, and who certainly um, would perceive um, immigrants who are, you know, who are, who are living with communicable disease as threats and try to frame immigrants living with communicable disease as threats to, um, to homeland security. And so um, that is not gone. And we need to be really mindful of the types of safeguards we put in place right now to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen again. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in essence, we're criminalizing poverty, we're criminalizing race, we're criminalizing survival. Um, through these laws. Can you tell, I, we'd, I'd love to hear what you would say to our audience about what they can do in their states about HIV criminalization laws um, in their states, as well as the impacts in their communities. Yeah, thank you so much. I think um, 
I mean, the first thing I would want to say to all of those providers is thank you for the work you're doing and that you do every day. Um, as a person living with HIV who's been diagnosed, um, as a person who works um, closely with a lot of different communities, I know that um, the folks that are coming to you for services, for support, are in a very vulnerable place. And so your your role and your responsibility is um, is very important. Like you have a level of um, of authority. You know, we're leaning on you. We're trusting you to give us guidance. And so um, I think that one thing I would really urge providers to do is try to be well informed about these types of laws and sensitive to these types of laws um, in your areas because sometimes, um, you know, when a person is in a very vulnerable situation around an intimate partner violence relationship or um, a recent HIV diagnosis, many times communities that have gone through a lot of trauma are looking for some type of solution. And the law might seem like it's an option to get out of a violent relationship or or to um, or you know to to try to to try to deal with something that feels um, impenetrable. It's I think it's really important to not necessarily encourage people to like you know quickly involve to to think about alternatives to law enforcement to involving law enforcement. What is really at the root of the issue? Do you need support? Do you need safe housing? Do you need um, referrals to systems? How can we help you make a plan? How can we help you get out of this situation? You're coping with this new diagnosis. That's really hard. Um, do you need to talk to other people who have been diagnosed and gone through this, um, you know, to kind of like help you figure out some next steps? Um, it can be a very isolating experience. And so, yeah, I would, I would urge folks just at that level to really, um, really focus on the humanity side of things. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, in terms of advocacy on HIV criminalization issues, we can use your support and we can use your voice. We really need it. And so um, in most states that have these laws, there's some kind of effort being organized to, um, to modernize these laws, to bring them more into line with current science, to create more protections, um, to repeal them. Um, or to put in place things like, you know, um, to, to put in place a lot of a lot of protections. And so I would just encourage folks to also get involved in those efforts and to um, to see how you can support them. And some resources for that are the zeroproject.org, um, a national network of HIV criminalization survivors. Also Positive Women's Network does a lot of work on um, HIV criminal law reform, pwn-usa.org. Um, we have successfully, in coalition, been able to modernize the laws in um, in Colorado, in California. We have Virginia. Um, so these are, you know, these are active campaigns that are being worked on. There are active campaigns right now in Florida, in Georgia, almost any place you are. Folks are working on this and. Um, we would love to have your support and partnership. And I think I think for all of us just to remember that law enforcement and the police have never served our communities. They've never they were never set up to really serve our communities in the sense that they were not set up to protect us. Um, they were not set up to to care for our needs. I think that it is incumbent upon anybody who is a, a community provider to really think about um, not the easy solution or not just being able to check off the box and say, I gave this person something, but to really think about what is actually going to meet the need.
Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this circles right back to the reaching for the healing that that each and every action that we're taking, every um, movement building effort is also about healing and transforming our own um, ourselves and our communities. And I, I really appreciate you putting forward that abolitionist frame because it it really provides a, a strong hook. And I kind of in that I, I mean, in the in the healing direction, I'd love to hear what or who is inspiring you these days. Yeah, thank you. Um, what inspires me? Uh, you know, I think, I mean, PWN members always inspire me. Our members are just fierce. They're amazing. They're badass leaders in the community. And so I encourage folks to check out our social media and stuff to hear directly from many of our leaders in the field about the fights that they're taking on to advance justice and equity in our communities. Um, I'm also I'm inspired by so many folks. I'm inspired by the the work of Stacey Abrams and her vision for the long game, you know, to transform um, to, to transform really like the possibilities for not only Georgia, not only the South, but for our whole country and her like long term vision to do that. Um, you know what else inspires me music dance being outside um i spend a lot of time with my dog which um, always grounds me in what's really important wonderful so great to talk to you today nana i really appreciate your time um and i look forward to talking to you again thank you so much for having me Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Deep gratitude for Kate Vanderteig's tireless and creative production work on this podcast. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.